You're listening to the Brute Norse Podcast, where we tumble backwards into the future. My name is Erik Storsen, and you're also listening to the voice of a cursed man. But let's count my blessings first. I didn't have much time to work on Brute Norse in December, because of the holidays. I'm sure you know how that is. But I was traveling during the holidays to a faraway land. And you know, I had a great time, but... I was sort of burning up with the unspent energy and guilt attached to the articles that I wasn't writing, and the podcasts I wasn't recording, but all the while seeing new and fascinating things that I wasn't aware of before. In my odyssey to a land where the past is very much alive, I got a lot of inspiration for new content, and I'm looking forward to digging into it in the brute Norse fashion, exploring the twilight zone where the old meets new. So it goes without saying that when I finally came back home, I was ready to fire up the engine and try to get into the flow of things again. That always takes a little bit of time with me. Then my mother-loving computer died. It wasn't out of the blue. Like the wrath of the awakened Saxon, it took a long time for my laptop to perish. It served me loyally for many years, but I was hoping it would last just a little longer, a month, maybe two. I lost quite a bit of media. I lost some PDFs, I lost some music, I lost uh, I lost recordings I'd made for Brute Norse. But all of my most important stuff, most of my articles, all of that stuff was backupped. I've always relied on second-hand previous generation electronics. That's good in some regards, but it gives you this illusion of being a walking EMP field. Machines just seem to break down around me. But thanks to my loyal supporters, I was able to reach into my savings and buy a new and better computer immediately. I don't know what I would have done without you guys. It means that everything has become a little delayed, but, you know, I was long overdue for an upgrade. I'm an old-fashioned beast of habit. I don't like adjusting to new technologies, layouts, apps, all of that crap. I also just moved to a new place. You will still be able to hear some of the noise from the New York streets throughout this podcast, which has become somewhat of a trademark in itself. I'm getting used to the cracking of the pipes, the noise of my refrigerator, my neighbors, all of that stuff. I got some feedback and some fan letters since last time. Um, here's one from a person who shall remain anonymous, but let's call him O. Spengler. Mr. Spengler points out a horrible mistake I made in the last episode, which, which I called uh, Pagan Christmas. And yes, as some of you inquired, that is an oxymoron, but that's kind of the point. Anyway, Mr. Spengler points out a horrible mistake I made in the last episode when I was talking about determining the correct lunar correspondences of the midwinter bloat. I said, totally wrongfully, that the lunar year was approximately 30 days shorter than the solar year, or something along those lines. This is obviously not true, and I was just jumbling the numbers. The lunar year is approximately 11 days shorter than the solar year. The rest of the system should hold up. Mr. Spengler actually brings up a clever point. He says that this is a blessing in disguise because it will lead astray the amateurs who only listen to that single episode instead of subscribing to the podcast. Yes, that is the spirit. So dear listener, give yourself a round of applause because you made the mark. If you just dropped in here by accident, just turn off the podcast right now and go away. Here's a letter from a guy who calls himself Romanian Rambo 1480. Uh, anyway, 
Dear Mr. Norse, why are you consistently avoiding talking about the engineered famines of Joseph Stalin on your podcast about ancient Germanic and Norse culture? What are you? Some kind of a cuck? P.S. Make more memes. My attention span is not very good. Thank you, Mr. Rambo. That is a very good question. I'll try to make another meme within the next six months. Finally, Rachel Cacklemore, pronouns they, them, ask about my thoughts concerning Odinist Rastafarian. Odinist Rastafarianism, specifically in the context of my recent ridicule of pagan appropriation of Santa Claus, which was not very nice, she adds. I mean, they. Okay, Rachel, I have my misgivings, but isn't that always the case? You know, it's neo-paganism, literally anything goes. You don't have to listen to me, I'm just a big sourpuss. Seriously, unsubscribe. If you want to construct your worldview according to the philosophical equivalent of finger painting, that is entirely your right. Hold on to that idea, because we'll be returning to Santa Claus at the end of this episode. So today I'm going to focus on something that doesn't always get my attention. You know, Brute Norse is supposed to be about the obscure history of ancient and medieval Scandinavia, but also its legacy, particularly its weird legacy. And this is what we're going to talk about today, specifically some of my favorite bogus literature in the field of Scandinavian mythology. Or not necessarily mythology, but, but yeah, mostly mythology, I guess. I suppose it takes a special kind of person to put Brute Norse on in an office environment, but let me just tell you right now that this is not a safe for work episode. And people will think that you're a little bit nutty. I don't mean like, yeah, I'm a little crazy, no, uh-uh. People are gonna think you're fucking nuts, man. Like you're some kind of archaeological sex fiend. Like a necrophiliac, but with older stuff. Who also believes in Nazi UFOs, in the power of sucking your own dick, and that God is a leprechaun. Outer fucking space. A book by the Norwegian theologian and linguist Kjell Årtun, Runer i Kulturhistorisk Sammenheng, or Runes in a Cultural Historical Context. Årtun is a recipient of the King's Medal of Merit in Gold for excellent research, but not for his writings on the runic alphabet. Professor Årtun's original body of research encompassed ancient Semitic languages, and he is one, one of many, who claimed to have deciphered the scripts of Linear A and that of the Phaistos disc. And just to be clear, Ortun alleges that the Minoan language was a Semitic language, but nobody actually knows what language group it belonged to. It remains a mystery to this day, and to be honest, I am not able to form an opinion on his research into that, because I am not an expert in Semitic languages. And due to this, Ortun would have you believe that this disqualifies me or anybody else from criticizing his work. In the latter years of his career, he began dedicating his time to a pet project, crafting controversial theories about the runic alphabet and the destiny of the Minoan civilization, more commonly associated with the Mediterranean rather than Scandinavia. This resulted in the book in front of me, and despite its unassuming title, it is certainly not for the faint-hearted. If you open any academic book on the history of runes, 
they'll tell you quite uncontroversially that Scandinavian elder Futhark inscriptions were a product of the upper strata of Scandinavian Germanic society in the Roman and Migration eras, roughly. And hence, they express the language we know as Proto-Norse, originally a northern dialect of Proto-Germanic. If we look at the inscription from Rosalan in the Norwegian region of Hardanger, most databases and books might point it out as a fairly standard Elder Futhark inscription. It is not particularly long, and it fits neatly with the formulaic language of these early runestones, reading Ek Wagigaj Erilaj Agilamundon. I am Wagigaj, the Erilai of Agilamundo. And that's it. We could analyze the contents further, but that's not in the scope of this episode. Besides, it would be very pointless to do so, according to Chell Ortun. Why? Because the so-called Proto-Norse language simply didn't exist. What? But we can trace the development of the language into Old Norse, and back into Proto-Germanic. We are reading these inscriptions, aren't we? Ortun is here to tell you that, no, we haven't been. And in fact, we have to discard everything we thought we knew about the development of the Germanic languages and runic script because these inscriptions weren't written by Germanic people at all. So what exactly does Ortun bring to the table? And how would he read this inscription? Well, why don't you open a bottle of wine, light some candles, and I'll read it to you right now. Complete the sexual act, all my sexual partner who art filled with lust. Behold, I shall rub with a greasy substance the one that penetrates, who injects the semen into the inner, who sows in the little space that is filled with lust, gag. The object of lust is there. Oh. Oh, dumb one. That's it, man. I could open any page in this book, but it's all the fucking same. So, Ortun's whole shtick is that in the days of yore, the Minoans moved into Scandinavia, and they brought their language and religion with them. And by the look of it, the religion is all about good old-fashioned fucking, because that's all the inscriptions ever talk about. Oh, and then there's the hieroglyphics. Because Orton doesn't just see runes and interprets them differently than everybody else. He also sees hieroglyphs. He sees them on runestones. He sees them on artifacts. He sees them on mountains. He sees it on pieces of coastal rock that would have been submerged a thousand years ago. Now here's the million dollar question. Are archaeologists seeing it? Are linguists seeing it? Are geologists seeing it? No, they fucking ain't. So what is his response to criticism from the runological community, you might ask? Well, are any of them professors in Semitic languages by any chance? No? Well, who is a professor of Semitic languages? That's right. Shall fucking Ortun, okay? That's basically his whole response. Sure, we can point out that he is not a Germanic philologist. He is not a runologist. He's not a geologist. And I'm not saying that his other research is fake science, but are you familiar with the concept of the conlang? 
you know, that there are entire communities online dedicated to uh, creating fake pseudo-historical languages that could have been, that people just do for their own entertainment. Like, what would Crimean Gothic have sounded like if it continued as a living language up until today? Or, let's construct a whole new language based on Proto-Germanic. It is quite possible that a person of Chell Orton's background would have been able to do something like that, but why? He wasn't writing a new fucking Lord of the Rings. So then we have to ask, is he a true believer? What is funny is that Orton's book wasn't some kind of self-published scheme either. It was actually published in a limited run of 2,000 copies by one of Norway's prime publishers of popular science books, Pax, who published him in good faith based on a lack of qualified fact-checkers. A number of years ago, I picked up Orton's autobiography with a passive-aggressive title that translates to A Scientist's Life in the Land of the Jantelaw. Scandinavians will probably understand what I'm talking about here. The book starts out with an idyllic account of his upbringing on the somewhat isolated island of Charnare, in my home region of Rogaland. It's an interesting aside here that Charnare's etymology might be something along the lines of Fucker Island, and that's actually not one of Ortun's theories. Charnare also has a high concentration of so-called sacred white stones that are, for the most part, garden gnome-sized penis statues that you can read about in an old article on BrutNorse.com. Unlike Ortun's scribblings, these artifacts may actually be useful to our understanding of pre-Christian Scandinavian fertility cults. Anyway, I had a very specific motivation for picking up this book. I wanted to know if Ortun had moderated his views in later years. To my surprise, the book kind of reads like a sequel to the original runic book, and he actually elaborates on some of the things he left unaddressed. For example, according to Ortun's first rune book, all runic inscriptions prior to the year 800, but also many Viking Age inscriptions, are written in his made-up Minoan language, and pertain to his runic Semitic sex cult. For reasons unknown, the Minoans vanished from Scandinavia during the Viking Age, without any real trace, having been replaced by the vulgar Norse masses whose origins are not exactly clear. But in the sequel, Ortun reveals that the cult was very much alive in the Nordic Middle Ages, and that the port city of Bergen, which holds the highest concentration of runic inscriptions in the world, was inhabited by a sizable population of Mycenaean traders who carved their incantations of lewd devotion on sticks of wood in association with some hitherto unknown cult site, yet somehow found their way into the household trash of the Norse population. I found the index of the book particularly interesting, where he helpfully lists the dozens of times he mentions words like penis, sperm, coitus, and vagina. Because this is the recurring theme throughout all his work, and when there is any question about the significance of some kind of symbol, Ortun always errs on the side of eroticism. For example, what do you think of when you see a stave church? I bet you'll be shocked to hear that he sees a fucking vagina. My first meeting with Ortun's writings came in my youth when I spent a lot of time with older amateur historians in and around my hometown. When I later came to study Old Norse philology at the University of Bergen, I was surprised to find a paragraph dedicated to him in the runology section of our main compendium. Hmm. I realized that these books aren't just useful introductions into the discipline, but reveal something about the personality of their authors, their hopes and fears and whatnot. What they find more or less important. 
This is why academic reception is so interesting. The book doesn't waste time debunking more widespread myths about the runes, but instead dedicates a meaty paragraph to an extremely marginal figure. Listeners and readers of Brute Norse will no doubt be familiar with my complaints that academics often isolate themselves from things they dismiss. They're quite often oblivious to the secret lives of the sources in more speculative and subcultural circles. I believe that the main difference here is that Ortun, in a sense, was one of their own. A sort of insane supervillain who used his powers to destroy what they were trying to build. This time, it was personal. Jesus. The meta perspective is kind of the most hilarious thing here, because Orton always says that he is the one being reasonable. He is the one being rational. All his critics are not. At the same time, his literature gets more and more crazy the more he publishes. But actually, Orton's subject matter and methodology is not uncommon in this sector of junk science. Fertility and sexuality always seems to linger around some crackpot theory, and it is more often the case than not that theorists of this kind molest obscure dead languages for this gain, because most of their audience, frankly, have no fucking idea how historical linguistics work. And to such people, two words sounding kinda similar is evidence enough that they are related. This gives them carte blanche to just make up shit as they go along. The only thing that sets Orton apart in this regard is that he's basically the J.R.R. Tolkien of runological bogus. Many aren't as refined and really makes me wonder if there's a correlation between folk etymology and mental illness. It is difficult to understand whether we're talking about ideology or pathology. And then again, there are probably a few who are just trolling. I've encountered new age feminists in Norway who pose as if they are historians of religion, who assert that Norwegian helvete, which is hell, means ve til hel, or a sacred place to hel, the goddess hel. Because that's kind of, sort of, what it sounds like in modern Norwegian, if you really, really wanted to. In Old Norse, helviti actually means punishment in hel. But that doesn't stop these people. And speaking of New Age nonsense, let us stop briefly at the Box Saga. The Bok Saga is a religious tradition founded by the Finnish eccentric Jor Bok, who claimed to be the sole tradition bearer of Scandinavia's true pagan religion, which was actually distorted into what we call Norse mythology, but is actually not the true pre-Christian Scandinavian religion at all. Hmm. At millions of years old, Bok Saga is actually the oldest religion on Earth, it reveals that humanity emerged from monkeys and goats crossbreeding. It also holds that the Garden of Eden is actually Finland. Eden is actually Odin, or Udin. The Finnish capital of Helsinki is actually Hell, and Hell is actually Valhalla. So the world is in debt to your Bach, who happens to belong to the most important family in world history. And it is through this noble lineage that the secrets of the true pagan sacraments have been preserved. Because Boksaga insists on the importance of one ancient ritual handed down from one generation to the next, which is the circulating of the water of wisdom, granting harmony and balance with Odin. Ah, but I hear you ask, Master Bok, how is this ritual to be performed? Well, the secret has been hiding in your loins all along. You must suck your own cock, preferably in a sauna. Women ought to do this by sucking their vaginal secretions through a straw, but we are also given the option to 69 with a friend. 
Myself to myself indeed. Alas, Christianity suppressed these wholesome practices in the 13th century, but we are left to assume that every pagan was happily fucking and sucking all their days up until then. And ever since, it has been up to the Bach family to properly teach their children how to suck themselves off for the gods. But what's up with this Eden Odin stuff? So a lot of their methodology surrounds something they call root language, which they claim is the primordial language of all peoples. This parody of historical linguistics is based on pure folk etymology, where the meaning of words is made up on the fly by comparing it with uh, words that sound kind of the same. So just by looking at some of their examples, as far as I can tell, this is basically how it goes. Okay, so here I have a pen. That's a great example. The, the pen is penis. Penis. Penis is pen. Let's say I believe this horseshit. I would tell you with a straight face that this is absolutely true and this is how it must be because, you know, ink comes out of the pen. Just like the ink comes out of the penis that you use to write your fucking saga with all over your face. Here you might be thinking that the saga is a physical document, a book, something along those lines. No, 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 no. The saga is written all the time. They think that saga means to receive or give or, or something like that. And it has been given from generation to generation, all the way back millions and millions and millions of years, back to the days when the sun just spun around the horizon, when the North Pole was in Finland, and people celebrated Yule by raising their arms in adoration to the sun, their throbbing members at attention. Boy, that was a time to be alive. Today, the religion is espoused by a persistent but aging clique of hippies, some of which are directly tied to your Bach and have personally tasted his uh, wisdom. Unfortunately, Eeyore Bach was stabbed to death by his personal assistants in 2010. But don't worry, the saga lives on, especially on YouTube, which seems like a good opportunity to switch to the final subject of the day. The early writings of Varg Vikernes, an infamous musician, jailbird, and later YouTube personality. I highly doubt that Varg Vikernes demands any introduction among my enlightened listeners. In many regards, he is a true piece of Norwegian folklore, and one I can probably credit as a direct or indirect influence on a much younger version of myself, for better or worse. And we're talking about a person who would be extremely easy to just ridicule. Because let's face it, I have nothing to earn from defending Varg in any way. And I think it is expected, probably, as a museum worker, as a scholar of Old Norse, as a cultural conservationist, and maybe even as a black metal fan, that I should distance myself from Varg his teachings, his thoughts, everything he represents. But I don't really think I have to, because I think my stance on Varg is very clear. Varg has absolutely no respect for the authorities that I heed. He does not believe in my ideals. We don't believe in the same issues. We don't believe in the same methods. When we open up an Old Norse text, we see two totally different things. I think he's a dumbass. But Varg is also the kind of person whom I'm never really sure if I feel sorry for or not. And if you only heard about Varg through his YouTube channel or memes about church burning, then you probably wouldn't understand 
But if you grew up like I did in Norway, seeing his face in the newspaper every few months, interacting with people who knew him personally, and listening to those early black metal bands in the most vulnerable years of your life, that makes all the difference. My first memory about Varg is related to the burning of Scholl Church, which happened in 1992, and is one of the three church arsons he was actually convicted of. And it happens to be where some of my ancestors are buried. I must have been either four or five years old when I remember me and my parents passed the site on the way to some family outing. And I distinctly remember that my dad was talking about the Count. The Count was Varg's pet name in the Norwegian media, which in a child's mind made him sound kind of like a villain from a fairy tale or some kind of cartoon like a Disney movie or something. When I later became one of the nation's many black metal youths, his musical project, Burzum, had a profound effect on me. I still get chills when I listen to albums such as Philosophum or Vislysetagos. And even when I listen to the early Dark Throne material and I read the lyrics that Varg wrote for them, his lyrics really captured what black metal was supposed to feel like in all its subtle, sinister naivete. Even to the point of a certain banality which very much resonated with me. And why would it not? I was a young, rebellious youth, pessimistic, misanthropic, cynical. But the style and contents are also wondrous, enchanted, fairy tale-like, a darkly folkloristic aesthetics of evil that reacted against the perceived mediocrity of Norwegian social democracy. But then again, I should probably avoid intellectualizing this too much because black metal was essentially fueled by kids who were looking for a sense of identity and belonging, like many other subcultures. Though, as a movement, I think it could only have been spawned in a place like Scandinavia, with a large, educated middle class, bored youth, and a deep, interesting, and often dark folklore that stands in contrast to a very conformative, trusting, and kind of toothless public image of the Scandinavian countries. And bear in mind that this is pretty much the opposite of what our reputation was just a couple hundred years ago. A reputation that only gets worse the further back we go in time. That is, unless we go all the way back to the migration era, because then Scandinavia becomes something like the cradle of civilization as far as the Germanic peoples are concerned. So if we return to the juvenile inner mythology of black metal, it embraces all of the things that modern Scandinavia appears to have rejected. And I know that many people see Burzum as this political thing, but none of this is present in Burzum's music. And that is because Burzum was an artistic project, not a political project. Many people today, like our parents back then, fail to realize that many of us saw Varg as essentially a pretty goofy character. It was all very abstract, and it was more a character of our oral culture a sort of countercultural totem than a significant ideological influence on any of us. Then again, my experience of this is subjective. Even when I was pissing up the church wall and condemning the Christianization for the utter massacre of all Norwegian values and traditions, I don't think I ever thought of Varg as anything but kooky. I mean, he could be a funny guy and he had attitude but a lot of the stuff he said was so over the top that it felt like he was trolling. And in some regards, we all knew that he was just a massive nerd 
who used to sell sneakers, enjoyed role-playing games, and got his infamous scar from a skiing accident or something. In other words, there was a huge discrepancy between the villain that the media saw and the much more human criminal geek that we saw him as. And this is where I feel really bad for the kids growing up today, who live in a totally different reality than I'm used to. They are not allowed to enjoy the art of somebody they do not agree with. They cannot enjoy the works of somebody they find repulsive. Basically, we are back in the tabloid days, where news pretended, through condemnation, not to be perversely fascinated by what they were presenting, and that they don't love scandal. Instead of healthy exploration of other divergent points of views, hypotheses, and flirting with societal taboos, kids today don't sympathize with outsiders or underdogs at all if they lack celebrity backing. The internet has obliterated the appeal of subcultures, and they grow up in an omnipresent media reality, where ethics are enforced by mob rule. And that wasn't my upbringing at all. I grew up in a social democracy where everybody conforms because of peer pressure, but still from peers that you can actually see in real life, and it allowed some transgression in the interest of intellectual freedom. This allowed me to grow up thinking that it was possible to be a genius and also a moron, and I think that Varg is a great example of this. It allowed me to view his crimes in a more nuanced fashion. He was sentenced to 21 years, which may not sound like much to an international audience, but is actually the highest penalty the Norwegian court can give, without some kind of psychiatric backing. I don't mean to say that Varg isn't responsible for his own actions, or that the sentence wasn't justified in the murder of Eistin Offset. He's guilty as charged, as far as I'm concerned. What I mean to say is that Varg Vikernes is far from a self-made man. Considering the fact that Varg only speaks in hyperbolic exaggerations, he was the best kind of bogeyman that the Norwegian media could ever dream of. I think Varg invited the media to see him as public enemy number one, but he was relatively young, and I'm not sure if he was prepared for the media to accept this invitation. Nevertheless, he played up to it and gave them something to write about for years to come. In a way, this kind of reached its peak with the recent movie Lords of Chaos, in which Varg is depicted quite spitefully uh, in a very cheesy, caricatured manner. I argue that the media, along with the prison sentence, are constituents in making Varg the man he is today. And it was in these tender prison years that Varg came up with some of the most creme de la creme nonsense that I've ever laid eyes on years before he was munching placentas for the Aryan race, and long before he proclaimed Neanderthals to be the true godmen. He published a book, like Celle Ortun, with a very unassuming title, Germansk Mythologie og Verdensanskuelse, Germanic Mythology and Worldview. In the preface, Varg explains that he intends not only to present Germanic mythology to the reader, but also interpret the myths for them without any consideration for political correctness. And sure, that sets a few expectations for the rest of the content, but it's not in itself crazy, because there are many past translations out there where the translator omitted certain passages that they found distasteful or vulgar, usually. Take the following passage from Lokasena, for example. Tegi thu njordur, thu ar austerhedan gisselov senderat godom, I'm saying this from memory, so I, I hope I'm not misquoting it. But it translates to something along the lines of Shut up, Njord. 
You were sent eastwards as a hostage for the gods. Hymir's maidens used you for a night pot and pissed in your mouth. I haven't seen many direct translations of that passage. Either way, the book starts out with a fairly alright retelling of certain events in Norse mythology. There's a fair bit of conjecture and some strained remarks about the Sami. Then it develops into a more naturalistic interpretation of the mythic content. And this is where the book gets increasingly bizarre. And in Varg's famous bombastic style, it invokes an alternative reality where nothing is quite as we thought it was. He uses etymologies extensively, but it's not really clear to what end, as well as a range of occult, scientific, and mythological correspondences that are often as insane as they are ingenious. Because behind the language of the Norse sources hides a world of interstellar travel, UFOs, sunken continents, and bioengineering. Promising that through reverse engineering of the Eddas, we can unlock a code that was programmed into our DNA and that will allow us to take to the stars and find the gods once again. In this weird science fiction universe, inspired by the theosophical writings of Madame Blavatsky, Lord of the Rings, and an obscure treatise on alien life by Vidkun Quisling, it is hard to imagine that this was all the work of a man who's been sober his entire life. But boy would I watch this anime. Admittedly, Varg has the decency to say that he is not an archaeologist, historian, scholar of religion, philologist, professor of mythology, or anything of the sort. He says that the image he's drawn of the mythology is subjective and written to explain his ideology and worldview, stating that he describes just as much how it ought to be as how it was. So how exactly was it slash should it be? Well, among the things that you can read about in Germansk mythology of Arnsamskulse, we find that the gods have hidden spaceports at the North Pole where they park their flying saucers. The Ents that you might remember from Lord of the Rings are real, and they are elves who turn into trees and walk around at night. Hence, we should actually refer to trees as individuals with personalities of their own. Neanderthals did not contribute to the evolution of modern Europeans as Varg believes today. Instead, true Homo sapiens were engineered by god beings from outer space. But he still says that apes and humans are technically still related. To understand how this works, we have to go all the way back to the sunken continents of Atlantis and Lemuria. To clarify, all life on Earth was created by the gods. But back in those days, they were still kind of experimenting. First, they made some grotesque and hideous beings, but were kind of disappointed by what they saw. So they killed them and cranked out a few animals with the genetic leftovers. But was that what they really wanted? Some ogres and a few birds, lizards and whatnot? Nah. So they raised their ambitions, they kept on working, and it took a lot of elbow grease, research, and a few failed attempts to finally come up with a satisfactory product, the human-Aryan race. But uh-oh, there's a problem. The problem is that the gods now had a surplus of hideous creations and unfinished pieces sitting around, including several races of more or less humanoid creatures hobbling about. So when shit hit the fan in Atlantis and Lemuria, you know, the two continents sank in the ocean, some humans fled to the jungles of Sumatra and Africa, where they indulged in bestiality and mated with the retarded third and fourth races, which resulted in some kind of gorillification, giving birth to unimaginable horrors. One worse than the other. 
chimpanzees, orangutans, <laughs> Neanderthals. Vargdan tentatively suggests that the <clears throat> dark-skinned races actually re-evolved into humans by mating with Aryans, possibly giving false pretense for the out-of-Africa theory of human evolution. Mm. But that's my conjecture. Okay, so the Aryan race was scattered across the globe when Atlantis fell, but only those who went north survived without succumbing to death and degeneracy. Among those, the even nobler ones went even further north, because these fruitless, arid, subarctic lands were better suited for them. And by better suited, Varg means suffering more during the winter, which invites contemplation and spiritual affinity with their alien gods. And this, my son, is how Scandinavians are made. So way, way, way back when, the god Heimdall programmed a timed script into our DNA to be activated in the future that would allow us to receive messages directly from the gods, but only if we kept our blood pure. Therefore, the most Aryan of us have a sixth sense that allows us to intuitively understand the secrets of the mythology on a level so profound that no scholarship can argue with it. What Varg seems to imply is that he is a recipient of such wisdom. Interestingly, Varg does include a very impressive list of sources at the end of his treatise, but most of them are never actually cited in the text, which is a shame because there is some really fantastic research in there. In all honesty, I think he included them just for vanity's sake, and I don't really think he read half of it. But to finish off, I want to address my favorite part of the whole book, where he addresses one of the most profound questions, one that scholars of Norse religion have been unable to answer until the secrets were unlocked by Varg's mental hotline straight to the gods. So let's find out. Why does Santa Claus come through the chimney? First of all, we must make it clear that there is somebody hiding behind that jolly disguise. Santa Claus is actually the god Heimdall, who Varg alleges is actually one of Odin's many forms. Why is this? Well, because Yule was the most important holiday of pagan times, and the gods reside in the heavens. So to get to Asgard, you need to cross the Rainbow Bridge. And who is the guardian of the Rainbow Bridge? Why, it's Heimdall. Heimdall is known to have amazing hearing, so it is audibly impossible to lie to him. And Odin, who is the one hiding behind Heimdall's disguise, knows all sorts of secrets and future events. Like Santa Claus, he knows when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you are bad or good, or if your blood contains the correct DNA sequence that allows you to receive divine wisdom. Therefore, Christmas presents are only to be given to good children, which is symbolic of Odin's spirit, which is the gold at the end of the rainbow, which makes Odin the leprechaun. Wow, what a beautiful bundle of contemporary pagan philosophies we've had here. Each a little bit different from the other, but what are some of the common denominators? Hmm. First, we may note that all have a rather idiosyncratic perspective of language and etymology, using their lack of mainstream backing as a selling point in itself. Because you know that that's an instant boner with certain audiences. It doesn't matter that it's dumb as hell. People will latch on to anything out of spite. The other is the idea that only these people hold the key to unlocking the truth. 
So if you want to set yourself free, you have to ignore everybody else. You have to ignore the sources. You have to ignore the scholarly tradition and take what they are saying at face value because they are essentially gurus. The third is a Freudian obsession with human sexuality, maybe to a lesser degree in the last example. But I think, I think that Varg made up for lost time in his later material. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Norse podcast. If you would like to support Brute Norse, I have a Teespring store that you can find on BruteNorse.com. And then there's also the Brute Norse Patreon, if you would like to become a regular supporter. Look it up on Patreon.com forward slash Brute Norse. It'll make me very happy. But for now, have a nice day. Hail Oxal.